Welcome back to the Replatform Podcast. Thanks for tuning in as always. It's myself, James Gunn. I'm joined by my co-host, Paul Rogers. How are you doing, mate? Good, thanks. Um, settling back in after a week off, which has been interesting so far. How are you doing? I hear you were crashing jet skis. I did, unfortunately, crash a jet ski. Yeah. Well, not too badly, thankfully. Man of many talents. <laughs> um, cool. So let me just set up this episode, then we'll introduce our guest. We've got another exciting uh, discussion today. So the, the topic is migrating the multi-store large catalogue books business. And what we're going to be covering is, uh, among other things, um, decisions not to go headless, when headless is such a like, massive topic in the industry generally, benefits and challenges of using big commerce um, in the technology stack, how adding a PIM can help with large catalog management, and, and also taking a, a bit more of a peek at the technology stack behind such a large and complex um, uh, business model, basically. So with no further ado, let's introduce our guest. So um, Nick, um, would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners, please? Hi, everybody. My name's Nick Sidwell. I'm one of the two co-founders at a company called Monwell. We're the ones who run the uh, <laughs> the stores with lots of SKUs. So we've got five five online bookshops. We work with national newspapers like Guardian and Daily Mail, that, that kind of level of, uh, level of store. Just, just a few small partners, yeah? Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> uh, okay, occasionally hit the, national, hit the headlines. Yeah, <laughs> amazing. Thanks. And Rupert, um, over to you. Hi, everyone. Uh, Rupert Cross, CEO, CDO, and co-founder of 5874. Um, we've been in the big commerce space for, for a number of years now. We were uh, big commerce partners back before they were big commerce in 2007, and we've done uh, yeah, several several hundred uh, big commerce stores of all different shapes and sizes uh, in between. Um, one of the last ones been this uh, been these uh, four or five projects for, for Mama. So I'll ask first question. So Nick, we spoke briefly um, before you decided to go down the big commerce route and we discussed mm-hmm. platforms and various different kind of components of the project. Um, what made you choose big commerce in the end um, over sticking with Magento 2 and some of the other platforms that you were on historically or you were looking at um, as yeah. well? Leaving Magento, that's the easy one to answer. We wanted to go down the SaaS model. Um, we're a you know, small, smallish company, and in terms of what you want your staff focusing on, where you want your budgets go, going, that kind of stuff, we wanted to move away from the the overhead of a self-hosted solution. So SaaS was what we wanted, and then for us, it was really a question of: is it big commerce or is it Shopify? And we ended up with big commerce, and I think we'll get stuck into a bit as we as we talk. The number of SKUs, the the volume of product data that were moving around, big commerce had um, they were not good at placing any limits on API usage. We use big commerce enterprise, so we had kind of the full scope and power of their APIs to play with, and, and we saw that as being a real kind of long term benefit for what we were trying to do. That makes sense. And we'll come on to the tech stack a bit more later on. Um, and you were looking at a number of partners as well when we spoke once. Big commerce. What made you choose five eight seven four? I think we kind of got each other from the first conversation. Um, what was important for us in the project was, I could tell, was was what kind of got Rupert interested in the whole big commerce stuff. So it was for us, it was the it was the less sexy stuff. It was the data flows and the organisation of it all and the architecture, rather than the beautiful front end. Front end absolutely matters and the, and the sites look fantastic, but they would 
be brilliant looking sites that were horrible to use if it wasn't all good behind the scenes. And it, it was, it, it clicked on that level. Um, uh, and we had a couple of great conversations with 5.8, good conversations with others as well, but it was, um, we, yeah, we, we got each other at, at, the, at the kind of the core of it. That makes sense. And you talk, kind of sticking with the front end. So I know when we spoke, you also potentially looking at headless as well. Um, between the two of you, and maybe Rupert, if you want to start, like what made you like not go headless in the end? Yeah, head, headless or composable, and, and how you and how you how you pull that all together. I think that as a as a as a subject matter is is something that needs to be treated carefully, and not just because it's cool and trendy in the industry now. Now, I mean, it would have worked both ways. Is the is the is the honest answer to that? But we really boiled it boiled it down to requirements as, as to what as to what Nick and Sarah wanted out of their platform. And I, if we pull it back to the key requirement, which was to be able to launch new stores in a matter of weeks not a matter of months um, and to be entirely self-fulfilling with that we've set up a system where they've uh, they've got one big commerce theme that deals with all five of their stores now um, and they're able to download it from one store and, and pop it onto another one now clearly there's a bit more that's involved in that um, and my team are involved in in launching the new stores when they come out but we don't have to be involved we're involved because Nick and Sarah want us to be involved so it was really around meeting those key metrics uh, uh, behind that I know one of the the, the big decisions um, in the project from coming from a, a platform where you weren't using a PIM for the, the product data management, moving into a new world in SaaS and using a PIM. Love to hear, like maybe um, Nick from your point of view and then um, Rupert from, from the integration point of view, what made the need for a PIM and what are the benefits to the business? Because I think a lot of people outside who aren't used to this would be thinking, why do I need to spend money on a PIM as well as an e-commerce platform? Yeah, absolutely. They're not cheap either. Uh, <laughs> the good ones aren't. Um, so where we came from before, we, we were using Magento multi-site and we had some of the, we've got big data feeds full of fascinating things like product metadata and images and all this kind of stuff. We had a bit of kind of out of Magento processing. So some of the heavy lifting was sort of done off-site, but not, it wasn't a PIM. Um, the reason we could get away with that is because we had one destination for things to go, one Magento instance. Everything goes in there, it feeds the different front ends attached to that instance. M moving to big commerce, and I believe this is changing, may have changed already on big commerce. The same multi site product offering wasn't there with big commerce. It was, we started with launched with four stores, we've added a fifth. They are four instances of big commerce. Than our five, and so we needed a PIM to give us one single way of talking to all the stores because they sell the same thing. So we've got a book. That book is changing inventory, or it's maybe changing descriptions, changing cover image, whatever it may be. We need to be able to make that change once, push it out. You scale that up to two hundred thousand products or so that we've got in the stores. It's something that you need automation. And a PIM is the right tool for providing that automation and, and for keeping everything on it. I think I think to add into that, I think it, it really it really is around the automation and the rules engine around what it then enables 
Monwell to do um, in the both now and in the future, and it's it's something that we really try and try and drive home to people. They're not solving today's problem; they're solving today's problem and the next three or four years' problem of, as to what they're what they're looking to do. So it really does open up a, a number of options uh, for for what Monwell are looking to do. Uh, I won't share those; I'll leave that up to Nick because that's uh, some of that's commercially sensitive. But the the point is, it gives them choice, and I think it's what we're all what we're all after in life um, is. Is, is choice, particularly when we're when we're talking about technology selection. And as as we grow, we've got two suppliers in there at the moment. And as we grow, we will add in more suppliers. We'll expand our product range, deepen it, etc. And we've got five stores at the moment. We will add more stores. The PIM gives us a way of you know it, it's got our it's got our back end catalogue, and it gives us a way of selecting the products that we want through the rules engine that Rupert spoke about, pushing them out to a store. And that whole part to drawing data in, getting it out, populating a store, making a shop becomes deliverable at scale because we're because we have the PIM in place. If we were doing it afresh each time, uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't want to do that. Yeah, and so, so that's interesting. The main thing is around uh, operational efficiency and the time for managing the catalogue. I think that's quite an important thing for people to hear that it's it it's it you know it's the speed of doing things in the future, not just the efficiency of initial setup as well. Um, and another question related to this: What were your? How did you go about selecting a PIM? So not so about the one you end up choosing, but I think some some advice for other people facing challenges: How do you know what's important? So for when it comes to selecting a PIM, first of all, look at what you're doing already and. You, you want to do that because you want to understand how your business is operating. And basically, a business is just data moving around, whether it's accounting data or marketing data or whatever it is. In this instance, it's product data. Your business is as effectively as good and efficient as your understanding of and control of those data flows. And that's an incredibly boring way of looking at it, but my God, it, <laughs> it helps. And so... We had a business that we knew really well. We've been running it several years. It's on Magento. We looked, okay, what are we doing? How does this data come in? Where does it come from? What does it look like? What frequency are we getting data feeds? What format are they in? Once we got that data feed from a supplier, so um, from a supplier, what do we then need to do with it? How do we want to use that? to drive the customer experience, be that product selection or presentation on the site or whatever it may be. And we went through that proverbial fine tooth comb, wrote out everything, diagrams of flows, all that kind of stuff so that we could visualize what the product information um, what paths the product information was taking as it came through our business and ended up with a customer buying a book. And that gave us a fairly lengthy spreadsheet and that formed the requirements of, of what we wanted a PIM to do. And then we we knew that from the business side and then we took that to Rupert and his team who know the technical landscape really well and said, look guys, this is what we're trying to do. I, I like to think they were pleased we turned up with a big spreadsheet rather than just saying we want a website. And we then spoke to them about the 
particular strengths and weaknesses of the different PIMs because they cater for different areas. And some PIMs will be terrific at doing stuff for multi-channel um, stores. Other PIMs will be fantastic at doing stuff for bricks and mortar. Other PIMs brilliant for digital pure play stuff, which is where we sit. Um, and they'll all be overlapping and, and it's so on and so forth. But that, that was where we started and that was how we then set up the conversations with the PIM suppliers. Yeah. I think I'd just I think I'd layer in layer into that on a on a on a couple of levels really. I mean firstly Nick, as I think he's probably coming across um, in, the, in these early conversations here, he was the most prepared merchant I've ever worked with, um, hands, hands down. I think, Nick, you'd spoken to just about everyone in the market um, possible, <laughs> which, was, which was great. Um, so it meant that you had, you'd had demos, you'd had introductions, you knew loosely what price points they'd all come in at, and we were able to, to guide Nick um, to be able to talk around, because everything in life is a compromise. It's cost, it's cost, it's, it's a cost, budget compromise versus a functionality compromise and they're not always in t- in tandem where they were coming out some of it i mean i think i think this was a big pit that big bit that boiled down to it was actually people um because there's a number of ways we could have cut this site from a, both from an e-com platform and from a pim uh, platform point of view but actually it was really the people the engagement who nick and sarah felt confident with who they were going to work with on the uh, on the long term out of that and i suppose probably probably the the slightly slightly lower one with that was we we're also then talking around an OMA um, and how that was uh, how that was going to come in. So obviously, some pin providers are combined with an OMS, and some are separate. So there was uh, there was some complexities uh, in, involved in that. And then I suppose the last thing was time to implement as well, um, and, and complexity that was involved in that because we spoke to a couple of providers that were mind blowingly complicated, and a couple of ones that just were never going to get to the level of detail that uh, that the guys at Monwell wanted. Um, yeah, I think that point about compromise is a really nice one because. Talked about this with several people over the years, but you you can achieve most things on on any platform, but how you achieve them varies. Mm-hmm. And I think some people often leap to the I've got to get it all in the platform, and it might not necessarily be the easiest route operationally or the best from a cost model point of view. And you can do it elsewhere. So that's why it's, I think it's really interesting listening for people that you went down the route of saying SaaS was the right from a technology principle point of view for you as a business, and you made the solution work in the SaaS context rather than saying, well, we've got to stick with Magento because it's got stronger multi-store out the box. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's an interesting, you're right, no, nothing's perfect, right? <laughs> nothing's ever 100% perfect. Yeah, and I, I think probably the other thing to, to stress, so, so when Nick and I are cut from the same, uh, same cloth with this, is, is modular architecture around it. So you know, to, be able to, to be able to provide Monwell with choice to drive their business Business forwards as 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 they as they strive through the next three to ten three to ten years is is absolutely crucial to what we were what we were looking to achieve and I'd like to think we've done that I guess Nick only time will tell on that is the is the answer I think we're four months in since you since your first site went launch and we've launched number five in that period but um, mm-hmm. but yeah let's let, let's see yeah absolutely and that that modularity Rupert says definitely that was a key part of the project and and the PIM fitted into that that philosophy it had a defined role and um for for what what it needed to give to us and when it came to compromise yeah it you know there were things there were requirements which were higher priority others which were lower bits of you know head scratch things we thought about which side you know exactly where we wanted the the kind of the give and take to fall but um yeah it fitted into that modular approach very much 
And um, and on the kind of modular approach, so you've talked about PIM and the role that played um, in the multi-store kind of architecture for the catalog side of things. Um, Rupert, you just mentioned an OMS. So which mm. OMS did you go with and how did you handle the same kind of complexities with inventory? So sharing a single source of inventory across five stores. Yeah, actually, that was, that was probably the easiest question you're going to ask today, Paul, because we, we went with Commissary OMS because it was built into Commissary PIM. So, um, but it was it, it's, it's a separate product, so you can implement it in its own right. Because the two played so nicely together, it made sense to use the same people to, uh, to, to implement that. Now, I'm not necessarily always a fan of that, but I think in this example, it worked well, and we worked with the same team um, in Glasgow and, 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 and the other half in Sydney that, uh, that really helped drive that one forward. And probably the other part, Part of that is because of the way um, because of the way Nick's book supplier um, works. There's several, and the way the book industry works as a whole. And I can talk about this now because I now know things about books I didn't know were relevant 12, 12 months ago. But for example, September is a huge time in the book industry when they start releasing lots of pre-orders. It's all the celebrities' autobiographies that are coming out for Christmas time and stuff like that. Nick, please correct me if I get any of this wrong. <laughs> but, the, um, but one of the key parts of that was the order statuses. And for example, we now have a method of doing of handling pre-orders within BigCommerce, which can be painful, but the way we've we worked around it using custom fields that we're controlling in the PIM that's then talking through to the talking through to the OMS. And at that point, the OMS is talking to Nick's supplier and we're using dot digital off the back of it to essentially send about five or six different other options of transactional emails where we're we're triggering via an API and an automation um, in dot digital itself. So we're getting past that well, what the 10 or 15 standard uh, transactional emails in big commerce and layering on a additional ones under under underneath that if that makes sense yeah that makes perfect sense and how do you how do you handle the inventory piece where you've got so if you've got like one item remaining essentially um and then you've got five stores that could essentially sell it how do you avoid overselling is that all handled within commerce so it's all handled in the OMS. Yeah, absolutely. So commissary will do that. And, you know, don't, don't get me wrong. They're all far from perfect. Um, and, you know, they, you can end up in that horrible 15 minutes where something's sold on two sites at the same time. And that's where that's where Nick's customer service team comes in. But uh, more often than not, it gets it right. And we're, we're okay for that. The sync is, uh, the sync is quick enough, um, I, would, I would suggest. But I would, Nick, is that too much of an, an issue in the book industry? Because I would, would, would suggest it's, it's a reprint to that point, run something that's perpetually then out of stock um by and large yeah where, where somebody orders something that the last copy's just moved off the warehouse shelf there's normally going to be another copy uh, on its way and it whilst it's technically possible as as rupert says that there can be one copy left of something and it um and, and it's bought in one store and and not the other the speed with which the frequency rather with which inventory updates makes that unlikely and we have Rupert touched on um the dot digital um it's one of its roles in the in the whole piece we have over time worked very carefully on our post purchase messaging so should something uh you know should a customer order a book and actually it comes to pick it off the warehouse shelf and it's not there we we tell them we tell them right away and we keep customers completely up to date and um whatever we know about the status of a book and an order we we tell them and 99 of the time it's fantastic your book's on the way but any e-commerce merchant 
you, you're going to have the you know the odd occasion where I actually need to tell your customer we're terribly sorry. Um, that isn't available immediately, but but here's our estimated date for when it will be, and um, and we automate that whole thing. So it it's a nice kind of belt and braces approach to it. A question around um, the data model piece with when you've got like external suppliers and data feeds. Mm-hmm. Did you have was there any fundamental change in the integration process for the people getting data to you, where people had to change to align with the new system, or was part of the decision making to deliberately? avoid them having to change their their data feeds? Uh, it's deliberate to avoid them having to change. Um, we work with suppliers of different sizes, some of whom can be flexible and create bespoke stuff for us, um, some of whom work with everybody from, you know, their, their suppliers to the likes of Amazon and Tesco and all this kind of stuff, and they work in a way, and it's that is the way in which they work. And so we wanted a solution that was going to allow us to make the flex and change yeah. as we needed it. It's, pro- it's probably worth flagging out here, James, that we built, we actually built a custom integration layer in, in Laravel um, that, ru- that runs the jobs to pick these up. Um, and we chose to do it that way rather than using something off the shelf like Appio or uh, or a standard iPass um, for, those, for those exact reasons, really. We knew we were going to be the small fish in the room compared to some of those Big uh, big merchants that Nick mentioned there, and then actually, I think one of one of the ironies about it was there was a there was a little API layer that was built for the Magento store that ultimately then converted it to flat files, and we went direct to source and went to the flat files with this at one point, so we dropped that bit. Now, having spoken to uh, to Nick's supplier, knowing and, and spoke to them about what the future of it was going to be, really, so we we they're, they're in their mind, flat files is the future of where they want to go. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I remember years ago working for a, a, a media company that was drop shipping to over 120 suppliers and from big businesses who were doing millions and millions of pounds to like, you know, almost like uh, the classic mom and pop stores, somebody who had no technology and everything was hand cranked. And, and I remember <laughs> said, to them, don't, don't change your integration and make them all go to EDI. It's going to kill off 40%. And it caused so many problems. So, yeah, it's nice to hear that your approach was let's let's take the hit ourselves and we'll fight solve it architecturally let's minimize the impact on our our partners it's a nice attitude to take yeah, yeah that, was a, that was a huge part of the of the of the platform selection process when we went through that um it was it was probably the biggest part actually was how we could how we could interface with that i suppose it's, it's that horrible thing of compromise wasn't it there were some red there's some red lines in every uh, in every set of requirements and these ones were were absolutely firmly highlighted in that yeah and i mean one of the ways we looked at it is if you're, if you, sorry, on our side, if we were making the change um, to you know, develop the integration layer, as uh, as Rupert's mentioned, there's a bit more cost, there's a bit more time in doing so, but because we're doing it, we're in control of it, and that makes a huge difference in the long run because you can adapt it as you need to in the future. If you get your supplier or third party, whoever it may be, to make a change on your behalf. When you've got a new business need that comes up in the future, you have to go back to them and you have to ask them to do something else. And you're no longer the new revenue coming in. And that may not be as attractive for them. They may, you know, it's actually, it just, it, it, it throws up potential burdens. Whereas if you're happy, able to take on a little bit more of the, the kind of the, the, the cost and development burden yourself, you will reap rewards invariably from doing so. 
Yeah, I think that's nice advice to anyone else who's in that environment of working with, with other people. Minimise the effort for others and they're more likely to support you what you're doing. Um, a question, uh, I guess, related to that is, what other technology did you bring into the stack? So you've got big commerce, you've got commestries, PIM and OS. What else was essential to help you achieve your kind of desired functionality? Uh, decent bit of search because we've got quite a large catalogue. Um, with search terms that are uh, a pain because <laughs> you're not searching for you know red red dress or black t-shirt or something like that you're searching for book titles you're searching for people's names you're searching for uh, books on a particular subject um so we use search spring uh spoke around the market there's great search solutions out there um i can see one of your sponsors in the background through another terrific search solution there. But search spring we used, we used .digital for email. Um, we used Commerce as we've mentioned. Um, we've got uh, payment providers. Stripe does uh, the, the main checkout. Um, there's PayPal on some of the stores as well. Um, most people will be very, very familiar with both. Fast Checkout was a newer one that we implemented, um, which allows effectively one-click checkout and they're quite new to the market and our big commerce and WooCommerce, I believe, are the two platforms they're working with. So that was an interesting one to bring in. Um, what else do we have, Rupert? Um, yeah, so the other couple of other ones, I've, I'm cheating because I've got the solution architecture diagram up in uh, up in front of me. Um, we use Shipper HQ at the checkout. In right. this, this was absolutely pivotal because, um, again, another book industry thing that I just never appreciated. There are, there are, as you can probably appreciate to certain countries in the Middle East, there are lots of restrictions around books, but I never appreciated how many individual products are restricted into the US, um, for example. So it was on a per project, uh, per product basis, we needed to be able to restrict Restrict, uh, restrict, uh, restrict shipping. And I believe you've also got shipping by weight in with that as well, haven't you, Nick? Um, I think is in there. Um, and then uh, Nick has got some uh, has got some requirements put on him um, by his uh, by his publisher partners, uh, so the Guardian, the Mail, and, and some of the other ones around reporting. And that's where we, we used a BI tool called Glue Analytics that plugs directly into BigCommerce to be able to pull that data very quickly because it starts pulling data from AdWords and from Analytics and Facebook and stuff like that. So that, that was a that was a that was a really key thing in there. I suppose we, we touched briefly on the search spring aspect of it. Um, books can be books have got titles and subtitles, so they're quite they're unusual in terms of a, in terms of an e-commerce uh, an e-commerce offering. Um, so you could so you could effectively have two products called white t-shirt, and how do you get around that? Because big commerce won't let you have two products named the same URL. So what we did is we took the title and the SKU and created one long product title, and then overwrite the product title in big commerce by having the title and subtitle as, as custom fields. Um, so technically, Nick's products, if you look in the URL, they're actually the title and the skew off the uh, off the back of it. Now, this then um, posed some uh, testing uh, testing requirements when it came to the search platform. Um, so, we've in terms of how we provided those results, SearchBring was quite a nice uh, it was quite a nice platform to be able to to be able to pull that through. And then, given it's an API integration rather than a JavaScript one, it was a bit quicker, which then uh, fitted some of Nick's uh, site speed requirements. Right. And um, and with SearchSpring, are you and the PIM, which one are you using for category merchants? 
merchandising? Are you doing it via search spring or are you doing it via kind of rules within Comestra? But a bit of both is the is the answer to that. So there's a there's a global catalogue that's created in the PIM that Nick can then manage and adjust within that. But the actual merchandising of the platform itself is uh, is is done within um, is done within Search Spring. Okay, makes sense. And um, and you mentioned Fast as one of the payment solutions or checkout piece you're testing at the moment. How have you found that? Like, I think that's quite an interesting one. We've got one of those types of solutions coming on the podcast soon. Uh, what kind of results have you seen? Have you seen like an uplift on that store? Yeah. So the reason we brought it in as a particular customer journey that we wanted to make more useful for customers and more useful for us as a merchant. Um, so we work, work with The Guardian. Um, in this particular example, they've got a book review on their website. Book review says fantastic. Somebody's just read it and they'd love to buy the book. And at the end of the book review is a link through to the bookshop, takes you through to the product page. We've put fast on the product page and only on the product pages so that once somebody comes through to the product page, very keen to get hold of their copy of the book and they see it's a good price and it's available and it's yes, it's what they want, it then gives them the few, the the least possible clicks to get hold of that book. And that was the role of fast. It was to make that customer journey as high converting as possible, as easy and as convenient for customers, make it, you know, the experience that they wanted on mobile. Um, it's nicely designed. It's, it's a genuine mobile-first design rather than not, <laughs> which is very often the case. Um, and it has uh, it, it's been a lot more popular than I was anticipating. Um, thought it might come in at you know, sort of low double digits in terms of the percentage of orders that it was. Um, uh it, it was representing and it's much higher than that and people seem to really like it. it it's you know that patent expired um the amazon one and you just mentioned you've got another provider coming on i know shopify have their one click there are options coming out there now and it's, it's no longer an amazon thing and it's really kind of opening up a nice new checkout experience for um uh, for other merchants as well have you seen any, I don't know whether you, you, you've dived into the, the data on it or not, but have you seen any device-specific bias towards it? Like, is it people using a particular like operating system or device that will use the fast one, or is it across everything? Um, it's across devices. So there's, um, I, I suppose you could you know, kind of re- rephrase that. It's it's not underperforming on any device. It's, yeah. it's And that's what you want because you've got, mobile traffic is that's where the growth is that's where the you know most people are coming in on mobile but it is relevant on desktop it's not just for half your customers or two-thirds or whatever your traffic split might be yeah interesting um and we, we talked about the fact you, you've changed your underlying e-commerce platform and your approach love to hear like in terms of a like operational impact like what have been some of the, the key wins that your team has experienced from moving to a new setup and using big commerce alongside these other tools ah it's been good that, that's the one that puts a big um, <laughs> big, smile. <laughs> big smile on my face so um this the speed of uh speed of development is way faster and a really nice example. Um, we suddenly had a very kind of short turnaround time. We needed to put in a tool that would 
allow us to do some relatively sort of complex voucher-based um, campaigns. And previously, that would have been, even if there was a Magento integration um, created by the, um, by the supplier, that would have been an integration. It would have been, you would have had to be recompiling and launching Magento and testing and you know, going through various different, you know, all your different environments, doing your detailed testing along the way to make sure that everything was 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 working well. And it's one of the beauties of SaaS is that it kind of it puts that all behind a curtain for you. It's still going on, but it makes things much simpler. And the nature of the integration is being much more kind of JavaScript-based rather than code-based and so on. Um, uh, allows you to work much quicker. So it took, I think, about four hours to turn that round rather than four days. And it's that order of magnitude quicker. It's It, it has been a real eye-opener for us. Um, and apart, uh, yeah, other than that, it's it's the fact that it, it has freed up operational resource to focus on the stuff that as a merchant really matters, the, you know, the front end and the marketing and how we talk to our customers rather than having uh, a dedicated resource there looking at the back end performance as well and the server architecture and all that type of stuff. Makes sense. And um, Rupert, a question for you. So obviously there's a lot of different third parties that we've talked about and a few different kind of approaches to things. Is there anything that you think could have been done differently to bring even more benefit or anything you would have liked to have built into the project if you had a bit more time? Oh, gosh, good good question. I think I know it's, it's something that Nick and I have spoken about. It's not immediately on his radar, but you know, I, I love the concept of apps and where that can potentially come come, come to. I know that we've, we've, we've done some work with uh, with, with Jay Mango, um, based out of the Netherlands, producing some fairly uh, some fairly straightforward big commerce uh, big commerce apps. Off the back of that, they did Gilmarines, um, for example, and that's something that you know Nick and I have spitballed about, but there's no immediate immediate plans to do anything like that in the uh, in in the future. Um, I think there's probably a wider question around whether if uh, if big commerce multi site, um, which is which is which is which is coming you know, at some point in the early part of next year, um, whether that would have changed our architecture and our approach. I don't think it would have done at this point. I think we were we were fairly firm up on where we were where we were going to there. Um, what else would I potentially have done? Um, no, I think that would have probably been about it at this at this point. I think there would have been it would have been nice to potentially go headless actually directly into the Guardian's website itself or the Mail's website itself. So we're actually checking out within there, but that's that's all options we've got for the future. It's not a nice it's a nice part and something that's been uh, that's been considered whether it's buy buttons or whether it's going for a slightly deeper integration than that. Perfect. And then my last question, so to both of you, um, do you have any tips for other people going through this style of project, essentially? So complex B2C project, is there anything that you think, uh, yeah, any advice you have basically for people looking to do the same thing? You go first, Nick, go. (laughs) Um, I think it's that point that I said earlier is, it sounds very basic, but it takes quite a lot of investigative time to really understand your business. Make sure you know, you know what your customers are trying to do, what's important to them, what your data flows are, what your suppliers need, all this kind of stuff. Truly, truly understand it. 
because that means that you can you can set the right thing up now and and as Rupert says if you understand where what it is now you can begin to understand what it might look like in a couple of years in you know etc and and you can make sure that you don't end up building yourselves into any dead ends that that's the key thing like when you're doing a project like this you, you you want to end up with with a platform it's a big investment you want to end up with a platform that you're going to be able to keep and you're going to be able to build on and that the next thing you do to it is to extend it and expand it and not to fix something that you kind of wish you hadn't done in the first place and that comes out of understanding what it is you're working with and what your business is working with yeah I think I I would just build slightly. I think I completely agree with with uh, with, with Nick there. That planning is is the thing I would uh, I would stress. Planning and research. Now, you know, we we don't take on a project at five eight without uh, without a discovery period. We're unapologetic about that. We we won't do it any faster than five weeks. Um, people can't do too long in, in the in the individual sessions. I know we did it re- remotely with Nick, and you know, more than a couple of hours on Zoom is enough for uh, is enough for anyone before they need to do that. But I think the key part to that is processing time and I think people are people are often rushed whether it's by the sales guys and the respective bits whether it's at Shopify or Commerce Cloud or Big Commerce tools or big, big commerce or commerce tools wherever it is um, where they're rushed into a decision you shouldn't be rushed into anything this is a this is a massive decision that with the planning and the research and taking lots of opinions on it was it they say if you, you should ask the opinion of five people and if three of them come back with the same answer then that's great but actually if a fourth one does as well then uh, then that's uh, that's that's even better and that, that can really then start to map out where you're where you're looking to go to um, you know it's and it's not just around the econ plan Platform within that planning part out of it. You know, Nick had spoken to everyone from Brightpearl to Limworks to Akinio. You'd spoken to the industry, I think, Nick, in, uh, in, in, in many ways, which I appreciate is, is relatively unusual, but it should be it should be that you're embracing this wider part. Now, if you're not, then I guess that's uh, I'll give you two a hat tip on this. This is where this is where both of your respective businesses come in, where they can get someone like you guys to come in and uh, to come in and help them do that part for them. But I think that part, that part's absolutely crucial before you even pick up a spade you should be uh, you should be planning if it's helpful it's a kind of bit of lived experience um all this planning as well it it doesn't have to mean that stuff then takes forever to do uh at all from the moment we thought internally you know times times come that we that we need to seriously investigate making uh making a change moving off magento to being live, four stores, all the infrastructure set up on big commerce, that whole thing, including all the investigation, et cetera, et cetera, was 10 months. And obviously the project delivery time, much, um, much shorter than that. And it, um, so within a year, we'd turned that all around, which I think was pretty good going, given the amount of stuff that we were, we were doing. We were pretty ruthless with what we did. Um, we didn't go the headless route because we wanted to kind of keep things simplified. And we knew that because we had investigated everything and where we found that we had gaps in our knowledge and we needed to speak to people. We largely just picked up the phone. That's, that's how we found um, yourself, Paul. We thought there's something here where we can't validate this ourselves. We need an, we need an external view. And so, yeah, the likes of Paul and Vivorn, they're good. They're, and, and they're there and they're, they're there for you to speak to. Um, so, yeah. 
I, I like the the general advice, which is you know, you've spoken to a lot of different people, and one of the big challenges people have is they go out and speak to companies, but it's not directed, and therefore you don't get the the project specific learning and insights you need. So that preparation of knowing what it is you want to achieve and why, and what's what's critical for your business success versus it's nice to have, but it's not that essential. I think that's the critical learning point is you've got to get that defined first before you can evaluate anything. Otherwise, it is just um, it's just kind of spraying in the wind. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's very easy to um, to spend a lot of money on the wrong thing, and um, uh, a bit harder to to spend as much as you can on the right. Oh. <laughs> Not spend as much money <laughs> as you can. <laughs> spend it on as much of the right thing as possible. Yeah. Okay, so we, we we love clients who want to just spend as much. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> it's, it's very it's very interesting. I've got I've got a I've got a really good friend of mine who uh, who, who does a, an ecom consultant role, and one of the things he always talks to is it's the easiest way to turn a to turn an ecom business from from running a profit to running a loss is to just buy the most expensive technology out there, thinking it's going to solve your problems for you, when actually you might not. I mean, the the example everyone would uh, everyone would know is the the iPhone 14, 15, whatever it is, has suddenly come out and um, you know, we'll run off and go and upgrade them, but we haven't actually paid any attention to what what that seventy pound a month bill's then going to do. Whereas it could be twenty pounds a month on a pay as you go, and you buy it in different ways, and they're really considering it. So, you know, that's I guess I guess that's why Martin Lewis has got a got a thing from from his uh, from his money saving expert stuff. But I think the same principle applies to, to that. If we if we applied the same learnings to to what we're doing in business here, it make a huge difference. That's why I still have a ZX Spectrum and send uh, letters. Nick Rupert really appreciate you taking the time to join us today and share your kind of like perspectives on the project it's been interesting I'm sure people listening will have got some some key insights out of it Um, and thanks as always to everyone for listening keep your ears open for the next episodes if you haven't subscribed already do so please um, and then you'll you'll get alerts uh, but yeah, so Nick, Rupert, thanks very much. Uh, and, and any parting comments, if, if anyone wants to reach out and ask any more questions, um, what's the best way to contact you? Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, if you search for Rupert Cross, it's probably the uh, the best way to do it, or 5874commerce.com. And I'm on LinkedIn as well. Search for Nick Sidwell or email nick at monwell.co.uk. Always happy to chat. Wonderful. Uh, take care, gents. Enjoy the rest of your day. Take care. Love to speak to you both. For more information on this topic, head over to replatform.fm for our audio podcasts. To discuss a project, or if you'd like to chat about any of the topics covered in this episode in more detail, please reach out to myself, James Gerd, or my co-host, Paul Rogers, via LinkedIn and Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and keep your ears peeled for the next episode.